Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. Join, as always, by my favorite guest, co- you're not a guest, my favorite co-host, <laughs> Shelly Billinghurst. Could you trip over that anymore, Serge? Good God. Yes, I am officially the co-host. Serge, uh, thank you. You always make me feel so welcome because let's be honest, it's the Serge show and I'm just the other co-host. Am I? Let's just say it. My whole world is the Serge show and (laughs) a guest. Everyone else is just a guest in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of guests... We've had so much fun over these last few months having guest co-hosts. So we're not interviewing, but we're bringing in more experts. And one of the experts that we loved and we asked her to come back and she agreed willingly to come back is the lovely Kim Wilkinson, Director of Recruitment with Verve Recruitment Group. Kim, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here on the search show. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I know. So I know secretly he's looking for a younger version of me that won't argue with him or maybe will argue more with him. He's auditioning my replacement. I just, you (laughs) just nailed it, Shelly. Cause like exactly a younger version, a younger, thinner version of me. (laughs) I don't know if less argumentative. (laughs) So Kim, I hear you've had a pretty exciting week. Anything you want to share with the audience? I'm excited and telling everyone that I've booked a vacation finally. I've just decided I've had it. We're going away. And so we've booked to go away at the beginning of December. We're going to Universal Studios in Orlando, which might seem a bit crazy. (laughs) But I feel like, honestly, I encounter similar crowd levels at Costco, and I would much (laughs) rather get coronavirus on a roller coaster than buying bananas. That was my mentality. (laughs) Okay. Because you know what? I think we've just recently had that lifted as far as Canadians traveling abroad. They finally lifted it. Yeah. Good on you. I think that's exciting. Yeah. I think you'll have a lot of fun. And you were there too, weren't you, Serge? I've been to Universal Studios, but it's been four or five years. Yeah. Because I think Mallory was, how old was Mallory when you took Oh, when we went to Universal, she was very young, but we brought her to Disney World right before COVID hit. So I think we went- Three years ago. I saw you at the airport. We were just getting back from Disney World as well. And Serge was picking up his his girls and wife and I ran into them coming out of international. I looked great after a five hour (laughs) flight. Just everyone wants to run into a business colleague. I, I didn't even recognize you. Um, I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Who is this homely looking right. woman? And it was okay. stop. Serge. Oh, you're you're awful. But <laughs> okay. Awful. Oh my I gotta God. tell you about what my girls are dressing up for Halloween. Oh, yes, so, yes, yes, yes. Tell so us. The the audience knows I have a six-year-old and I have twins that are two and a half. So what we decided to do this year, because really the girls just they went trick-or-treating last year, but they had no clue what was going on. And this right. year you probably still won't know, but they have a better idea, right? So Mallory is going to be dressed as Cruella de Vil, and you should see the outfit. It's so cute. Oh, like yeah. she's got the perfect hair, the perfect outfit, and the gloves. I did have to take away the stick, uh, the cigarette smoking stick. So she's not going to be carrying that around. Oh my God. 
And the girls were putting them in little Dalmatian uniforms.、Uh-huh. But I will post some pictures of what that looks like on our Instagram、oh, account.、Wait. So if you're not following the Recruitment Flex on Instagram, please do. Shelly, the last、yes. conversation, talking about dogs, the last conversation we had、puppies. is you were looking at puppies. Do you have a puppy? Are you close to getting a puppy? Where are you at now? Thank you, everyone out there who sent me recommendations. I did a full blown research on every recommendation sent to me. I know I'm getting a lot of pressure to go to the bulldog.、Uh, no one's and- pressuring you. Who's pressuring you? <laughs> Well, the, the sales pitch is really <laughs> compelling. Let's go with that. And so I found a breeder of a dog. She crossbreeds the soft coated Wheaton Terrier with a poodle. So they're both hypoallergenic dogs. I, I talked a couple hours on the phone with the breeder. And now I'm contemplating is when. So, what is this build a dog? Both myself and Kim have French bulldogs, and we've both had a couple of French bulldogs. So, we weren't hard pitching you on French bulldogs, <laughs> Shelly. We're just telling our experience because we both、this、had one and we loved them、story. so much. We got、yeah. two. So, that should be a good story on how great these dogs are. But, Kim, you might agree there's a lot of potential health issues with French Bulldogs.、Uh, I know I came across with one of my dogs. I don't know how healthy have your French Bulldogs been?、Oh, they've been really good, other than the smelliness and the allergic to water and kind of nuances of French Bulldogs. No, they are, they're, they're tanks. So they're good. <laughs> They're tanks, and you're right. I actually love their smell. I don't like their farts, but I do like their smell. <laughs> they smell like corn chips. So you just smell like I'm, what are you I'm feeding them?、Oh、no, it's、God. just like they smell like corn chips. And no. So that's、oh、my smelly dogs. Smelly dogs. It's like the smelly cat song on Friends. Yes, yes. What are you feeding them? Yeah. Let's jump into recruitment insights. Kim,、no. how about you get us off on、uh, the right foot? Totally. I wanted to talk about something that I find enraging a little bit. It's all about clients requesting or demanding a breakdown of agency contractor fees. And I have come across this more and more where clients want to know what your markup is or break down exactly what that bill rate is made of. And to me, that's very synonymous with me going to a store and asking that store, how much did you actually pay for this item? So then I can determine if I deem that they're marking it up in a way that I see value. And I have a couple problems with it. I think it's a bit tacky. <laughs> and I also think not being a recruitment professional yourself or having maybe not worked in an agency environment, how qualified are you really to determine what an appropriate markup is on a service that you're providing? Yeah. So I wanted to know what you guys thought. Am I out to lunch on it or should that be information we're sharing? I'm really curious, Shelly, what you think. I'll let you go first. Okay. So I hear you. It's like, you know, when your accountant hands you the invoice for doing your taxes, are you asking them what was your cost? Yeah. <laughs> On producing this, I get why it's given you the heebie jeebies. I've encountered the same thing over the years. And I always think, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Kim, the person asking for it is a real eager beaver in supply chain. Or they've just taken a course in contracts management 
And they want to see the numbers so that we can compare apples to apples because they've RFP'd this and they've got a a budget. You know, this is an RFP worth, say, $6 million a year. And what is your markup? How much money are you going to make on this? And supply chain does want to know. I want to prove to my boss that I can squeeze every nickel out of it. They've not yet experienced making a decision based on the lowest price. Because making that decision on someone who came in with full transparency on their markup, and then you do a dial forward and look back because they will find a way to make up for those extra dollars. You still got to run a company and you still need to make money. I find it's described differently. I know in different companies that I was at, we described our markup in different ways that weren't apples to apples either. I had a a conversation with a client who wanted to know my markup and she said she was getting temp markup at 15%. And I'm like, that's actually not possible because pay burden is 18 to 22%. So that company's either taking a loss or they're not being transparent about how they're articulating their markup too. So I think there's a lot of room for interpretation and untruths in that conversation as well. I've been that guy that's been asking for the breakdown of what uh, the contract should be. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of reasons for that. (laughs) One of the main reason is generally I've done it in a volume type setting. So there's multiple situations that we're bringing 30, 40 people. In reality, I want to know where my cost is. I understand what burdens are. So I understand the 18 to 22%. And I'm not against knowing the rate is higher with your company than the other one. I'm very conscious of what the actual contractor is getting paid at the end of the day. Say I'm paying you 100 and the contractor is making 60, but in reality, this is like a 90 or $80 position an hour. Am I getting the best quality? Is this person being underpaid? So the minute something else comes in, they're going to leave. So that's been one of the reasons. And also it depends on the type of work they're doing because there's been cases that I've just been payrolling contractors through an agency. So in reality, I've been finding them and the margins should be completely different in that sense. So yes, I've been that guy, not always, but as a director of talent acquisition with a large contractor workforce, there is value in me knowing when I'm going to the market, but also getting a sense are the people that I'm bringing in being fairly paid. Because if they're not, i rather deal with paying more, even though the margin doesn't change. So that's where I'm coming from. Does that make sense, Kim? Am I being an asshole and asking? Well, tell me. <laughs> tell me another time where you would buy a bulk item then, where you would also pressure your vendor to expose their costs to you? So good question. In bulk, it happens all the time to your point, Shelly, and supply chain has a pretty good idea. If they're buying millions of, say, pipe for an oil and gas company, they know what the vendors cost and what their markup is on it. That's very common in large volume B2B purchasing. It's so. I haven't done purchasing at that level. So I'm like, do they ask or are they just saying, this is how much we want? What are you going to charge us? Or are they breaking it down like that? So I think we're blurring the line here, if I may jump in, because I love your example, Serge, of pipe, because there is a world commodity price on steel. And a good buyer understands that if you gave a company a purchase order for steel 
and you had a locked in price and in 2018, that's the price you pay, even though the commodity of steel may go up or down. It's the same thing with who would negotiate fuel prices if you've got a fleet of trucks. But hold on a minute. Let's back up to something you just said, Serge. The fact is why you want to know. I don't want to know from you, Kim, what your markup is because I'm going to dictate how much money you make. What I really want to know is how much you're going to pay these people because I will tell you the fact that you're now going to integrate these people into my organization and they're side by side with a core employee who's got full benefits, who's got set hours, and this is a long-term relationship. And you're having someone come in who may support them or may be um, even senior to them, who's being paid less with no benefits and no guarantee and a variable end date. And by the way, I can fire your ass with one phone call because I just called Kim and said, get rid of them, right? So Serge's point, I think, is at the heart of the matter. This is not about grilling you about, I resent the fact that you're going to make $60 an hour off the sweat of the brow of this poor human being. No, just tell me that this person will be paid. And I would say our employees are paid, say, uh, $35 an hour for this role. You need to give me a price that guarantees that person will get $35 an hour and they'll get benefits after 90 days. That's what we want. Shelly, I agree with that. And I think one of the things is I want the people I'm working with, so my partners, my external vendors, to be profitable, make money, and I'm not grinding them down. Because the minute I grind them down to nothing, I get that level of service. And honestly, I deserve that level of service. But this is the challenge you're probably coming across, Kim, is some people try to grind you down thinking you make too much money on this particular case because this should be easy. You can just find someone by going next door and tell, hey, I got a job for you. They don't understand the amount of work that's being done in the background. They don't understand what it no. costs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true. And I think that's where it lies is that I've had clients that are transparent. And I think you guys are anomalies where you understand the backside of the business where my clients, yeah, we'd like them to be paid roughly this amount. This is our pay range. We'd like it to stay in. Let me know what your total cost is. But I definitely see it more where they're asking for a breakdown to try and whittle on that margin and negotiate to get a lesser cost on that side of things. I would say that's the bulk of why that question is asked. Yeah. And you have a business decision to make because in reality, do you want to break it down for them? And is it fair to break it down? But then you also have to put in perspective that competitor B might come in and break it down for them. And that might close the deal based on that. The market's going to dictate it in some ways, unfortunately. So you can decide what you want to do for your business, but you got to be aware you might potentially lose business because of it. I agree with you. I'm not 100% sold on asking it. And I think the context that we're giving you as far as guaranteeing a pay rate of what they're actually going to make, I think that's fair. But the staffing agency world is filled with tons of people that are trying to bring the price down to gain market. They're giving the breakdown of everything they're making to gain that business. And they're probably not good recruiters, but you have to figure out a way how to get around that. Totally. So how do you respond, Kim? I'll typically just let them know what the bill rate's made of. There's also some confidentiality around pay rate. And technicality, I am this person's employer. Employer. 
Yeah. And I'm not at liberty to share what this person's being paid. And sometimes I find too, is I'm paying the candidate maybe even a little bit more than what the salaried employee would, because I do understand that there are no benefits. I understand that it's contracted as well. And so I'm not interested in having that argument with them. I just let them know this is sort of what it's break down to. The bulk is going to be candidate pay and payroll burden. Because a lot of people don't know that. and they don't forget understand. it. And then I say the rest is my fee for you know candidate management and processing payroll weekly and all of that. So Mm -hmm. it usually goes over well. We'll move on to the next recruitment insight. Here's what I wanted to talk about is how can we make job interviews less horrible? So I found this article and it, it cited a book called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. And I have long said that making a hiring decision based on a piece of paper and meeting somebody for the first time, your gut response is going to be right uh, 50% of the time. So if you like those odds, carry on, (laughs) just keep doing it that way. When in fact, this article revealed that it's about, it's 56 to 61% failure rate of when one candidate sounds better than the other. Then of course, you've got bias that plays into it. You've got two candidates and you've just decided that someone who lives in Northwest Calgary would be a better candidate than somebody who lives in another part of the city. So what was awesome about this article is, so how do you fix it? They pointed to what Google does in hiring. They have several people involved and each of them interviews the candidate separately, but they're given guidelines for judging the candidate on a specific criteria. What that means is it may be things like leadership ability. So I am a leader in the organization. When I interview somebody, it's one-on-one with them. And then I will assess myself a score. And then we all come back together after we've met the candidates and we make a decision. I like it. I know early on in the podcast, Serge, you and I talked about, should you do panel interviews? Why do companies involve 10 people in the interview process? And what sort of a candidate experience is that, right? Like to be interviewed that many times. I thought this was brilliant. I I really do. It means we need to contemplate what's important about the job. How do you remove bias? You can't. It's impossible. And how many people really need to be involved? I think the bigger question is, what are you going to ask them? And who knows what constitutes a good answer? Unless you contemplate it in the beginning. Couple challenges here. So panel interview is one of the things we've talked about that I'm not a big fan, but also the flip side to it. One of the candidates' biggest concern is multiple interviews. And we see examples of seven to eight interviews. And Kim, you probably come across this all the time with your clients. What I've done in a lot of cases is I try to reduce the amount of interviews because the minute you pass three interviews, you're going into a completely different realm as far as what the candidate experience is going to be. So in this example, the challenge here, Shelly, is how many interviews is too much to be able to Mm -hmm. determine that. I agree with you. I like to have people interview individually, but there's a certain limit of how many you can get. Google is the same company that did research on this, that the difference between, say, just picking A and B without interviewing them and actually interviewing them is like, it's nominal. There's almost no difference in the success rate of these particular people. So Kim, I'd be really curious on your end as far as how you feel about that, because like we need to reduce the amount of interviews for poor candidates. We do. And it is a candidate market right now. And so you snooze or take too long of a siesta, you you lose for sure. Time is of essence. 
Another question I'd have around that too, and I love the idea of different people's perspectives is someone's comfort level over time. And I think, is that an equal representation of that person based on their first interview with that company and their fourth interview with that company? If they're asking similar questions, you may become a little bit more relaxed. And is that a fair assessment? And will we be getting a real look? Going back to then, I guess that panel style of asking a question and having a group of people each evaluate off of that original answer so that it's apples to apples again. Someone may ask the question completely differently, have a different tone, and that really can set the stage for how a candidate's going to perform in that interview. Panel interviews are the dumbest fucking idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Seriously. I'm just panel- trying to go with your idea, Shelly, of more people. Oh, okay. So no. So panel meaning this is the candidate sitting in front of five people. Do you know what that will tell you? how well somebody does when they are being interrogated. Because you can't tell me that the dynamics in that room, five people staring at you and making a decision about everything you say, what does that tell you about long-term success? Not a fucking thing. It just tells you they do well if they were ever arrested and (laughs) accused of doing something like selling secrets to the Russians or something. That's all that tells Shelley, you. Shelly, how many people horrible. how many people would be a panel interview? Like two, three, four, five? Is there a number? A panel? When clients have said it's a panel interview, there's usually more than three people okay. in the room. So unless you have a rock solid process that says, okay, so why do you have this person in the room? What usually happens is you start with, we want our director of marketing. We want the manager of marketing. Oh, and let's get Susie to join. Oh, if we're going to get Susie to join, then we should have Fred join as well. And now we've got six people in the room. And of those six people, maybe one or two actually knows what are the essential things we need to know about this person's experience, their leadership skills, their cognitive abilities. The rest of them are there to go what is their purpose? But Shelly, this happens in a, a different context. How many times have we come across the interview, the hiring manager, the interview, a colleague, the interview, the VP, and then they're like, ah, Jim in marketing has an interview. So can you come for another one? Then Margaret okay. from accounting hasn't interviewed you. As a candidate, give me five people in a room all day, every day before I take five different hours to meet everyone individually. So, And you would also hold up under torture. I know that, sir. I would. I would. So being tortured, you will shine because you hold up very well under torture. What I'm saying and what this article is saying is, listen, this can be done so much better. You're right. There needs to be a reasonable number of interviews. But the whole point was, I am part of the interview process. I am given three questions to ask that I am then judging the candidate's response because these are specifically relevant to the job we advertised, to what we need from this candidate, and we believe they have those skills. But I'm doing it one-to-one. And if it's 20 minutes, three questions, and yes, can you book them back-to-back? And I think that's probably how they do it. You know, to ask somebody to come back seven times over two months, that's ridiculous. But I know a lot of companies that do it. What are our thoughts on the working interview then? So I've been through this process and I actually, as a candidate, found it pretty valuable going in and I'm going to meet with 
three to five people. I'm taking a few hours of a morning, but I'm going in the office and I'm going to see real live things of what's going on. I get to sit beside someone, ask some questions about what they're doing. They can explain, is that maybe a better environment to see how someone is going to function in real everyday life? Because I don't care if you're in a panel, you're one-on-one, you're in a video interview, you're sweaty you're using words you wouldn't normally, you're stuttering. No one's their normal self in an interview. No one. And so unless you're good at being tortured, Surge is probably great, <laughs> great in interviews, but um, dry as a clam, those hands, but our hands <laughs> are not dry. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. But honestly, so it, would that create a better opportunity to evaluate a candidate, you know, in a real life situation. What you just described sounds like torture to me. I was just going to say that. Like, oh my fucking God. And do you get paid? Are they going to pay you for that half day well, working? And interview? that's a question too. I've had clients that do pay candidates to come in. I have some that do not because it's, you know, two or three hours. And then it varies on, am I paying a candidate to come into an interview if it runs long? That's a different conversation for a different time. I guess it depends on the role. Kim, I think what you're saying would have value in certain roles. Like uh, what? Name one. I, I, I hate that you asked that because I can't think of anything oh. <laughs> top of my head. So I, I was just hoping. I thought it was good as for my first job going in as a recruiter, I had to go down for a morning and sit and really understand that environment and go, this is what it looks like in here. I, that, that could have value seeing the environment in every way. But just the thought of going into an office, I, I start, ooh, I, like I, I get a little bit freaked out. Yeah, I guess recruitment, sales, maybe just to see what the culture, I think it's beneficial for the candidate more than the employer, but I might be wrong. Shelly, you have something to say. I sure do. Oh my <laughs> God. This whole notion of a working interview. So Let's back up the bus. Who owns the power in this relationship? The employer. So what are you doing? You're bringing somebody in. And when you think of the emotional energy of starting a new job, what's at stake here for you? Are you going to come in like your head is fucking spinning? Like, how could you possibly know unless you're super experienced and you can come in and you can assess them in a 10 minutes or less and say, I wouldn't work here. I don't care if it was a million dollars. That's not the norm. I think clients that do this sort of working interview thing, like I can see why you're getting a rash search, just thinking about it. Because it's honestly, like, it's not fair. It's not fair. Well, right now, I I would argue it's the candidate. Like, right (laughs) at this moment, I would say it's the candidate feel that. I don't think so. I think even in a candidate rich market, you go into a situation like that where you're being questioned, you feel like the power's there. I'm going to have the last word, as I always do. <laughs> okay, go. In reality, hiring and selection is always going to be a challenge. There's always going to be bias. And like it or not, people that are good communicator are going to do better in an interview and have a higher chance of getting the job than even a more competent person that's not as good a communicator. Don't overthink hiring. Hire fast, fire fast. I think that's the strategy. You bring in people, you hire them, you take a chance. You know very early if they're going to work out or not. They not. Let's not waste anyone's time. Thanks for coming in two weeks. You're going to get your paycheck and you move on. I'm going to move on to the next topic. Unless Shelly or Kim, you wanted the last word Mm -hmm. on this Mm -hmm. particular topic. Mm -hmm. You have it there. Mm -hmm. We're just guests here on your show. 
There you go. Kim gets it. Shelly, you can learn a lot from Kim. <laughs> oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she gets okay, it. Thanks, she sir. gets the dynamic of this. I'm going to talk about Fishbowl. Around a month ago, Glassdoor purchased an app or a company called Fishbowl, and I never heard of it. So I'm always interested in what's going on in the marketplace. So let me take a step back and just give you a little bit more details of what happened. So Fishbowl is a competitor to LinkedIn, but not really. So they have a million users. They've actually, in the last year, have tripled the amount of users. And you put in context, there's 760 million LinkedIn users. So you're never going to be able to compete. Glassdoor has around 55 million monthly users. So pretty high traffic for a site. I was curious of why Fishbowl and what is Fishbowl? So one of the elements that Glassdoor is doing, they're actually integrating Fishbowl into their own environment, but Fishbowl is still going to be a separate app. They decided to download the app and play around with it. One of the things that I've noticed on LinkedIn, maybe in the last like two years, it's not real. LinkedIn's not real, right? I, I am so sick of people's job update. I'm like, I'm so honored to join the wonderful company at ABC. It's been great to working with company XYZ, but this is the new challenge in my career. And I love their passion and their drive to change the world. I'm like, oh, that's such bullshit. Barf. Like, just barf, barf. And that's so all gross when people are happy about something in their life, like disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> what, who are these people that are happy? Dare they be excited? excited about a new job just get off the site already <laughs> but kim is that authentic you know, when you on. see that is that authentic when people are putting that like and there might be that one percent but like is it real like when you read that are you like really buying into what they're saying i don't, I don't have my wallet out when i'm reading those things you know what i take it as what it is i give someone to celebrate just good for you good for you for putting it out there <laughs> All right, Shelly, chime in. What do you think? So if I'm being completely honest, I feel sometimes people use it as a fuck you because they took the leap and look at this. They sent me flowers on my first day. I've got a lunchbox with my name on it. And it's almost like the ability to <laughs> just like, I'm doing so much better than you. Maybe I'm a I don't know. Like, well, you think I'm cynical, like Kim. I, that is even more cynical than I am. Yeah. But I, like, well, where so I'm no, going really. with so why do you have to publicly claim this, and why do you need the attention? It does remind me a little bit of an attention whore that just needs everyone in the world to know I'm happy, and oh, you're not. Well, I got the job when you know damn well that other people in your network probably applied for that job as well, but. I got the job and look at how happy I am. Why okay. do you need to be public about that? You can be public, but that, why? let's but even... Why? Like, why do you need to, the attention? I, I, I don't That's know. That's attention hard material, but I am the sluttiest gal out there. <laughs> I really, I'm posting all the time. And no, I know this is great is... personal branding, I think. No, no, Kim. No, okay, Kim. Hold on. Little different than the whole sugar sappy, look at me, I'm so happy. They treat me so well here. When you know that, most people leave jobs because they're unhappy, but why do you feel compelled to? We're losing the plot here. Oh, okay. I'm, okay. I'm we're growing what Serge wants yeah. to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, I'm going to keep moving. So 
what I mean is a lot of it is not really authentic. So Kim, to your point, you do post a lot, but I think it's very informative. It is actually real things and help people be better at their job or how to search for jobs. There's nothing wrong with that. But then we have the whole world of the Liz Ryans, Bridget, Oleg, who have been posting and have millions of followers just posting complete bullshit. I, a guy came in for an interview and he had lost his wife, his kid, and his dog bit him. And he had no degree. He was wearing a garbage bag. <laughs> he was wearing a garbage bag, but I took a chance on him. And he has now become my president after two years. Like, <laughs> It's all made up, all right? So Fishbowl's goal is to be a more authentic voice. People can actually go on and give a realistic picture of what it is to work in different companies and actually ask questions to people that work there. So I'm part of these different groups, okay? So I joined the recruiter one, I joined the HR one, and the recruiter one, someone said, hey, I'm on my fourth interview with Amazon like, what is it really like working at this particular plant? And several people who are anonymous came in and be like, be careful about this. This is actually what you should be asking for salary. This is around what we pay. I think that's extremely valuable and it's real feedback and a realistic picture compared to what you would see on LinkedIn. Is Fishbowl going to take over LinkedIn? No way. It's never going to happen. But I think it's a different place that people can go in and have real conversation without the sugar that is on LinkedIn. I see LinkedIn very similar to Instagram that you're only going to share your best moments. You're not going to share the really shitty moments at your job. But anyways, I recommend that you play around with Fishbowl. I thought it was really cool. I, I haven't used it on Glassdoor. I avoid Glassdoor like the plague, but Fishbowl, I think it's going to catch on way more than what we've seen. You feel it's like the trip advisor for jobs where the negative Nellies love coming to the table. So are you getting a real picture because we all know that a bad experience is significantly higher probability of coming to the table with a review than a positive one. So how are they managing to make sure that it's realistic? Is there something in place? Let put that in context. Yeah, Glassdoor is where you're going to get a lot more negative reviews. But this is an approach in a little bit different way. That's People are asking a genuine question and hoping no. for an answer. Is there going to be negative answers? Absolutely. But it's not overwhelming that it's negative. I, I thought it was like 50-50 depending on the yeah. questions. And what's really cool too about it is people trying to get, say, in HR, what should I do? What steps should I take? And other people in those roles are giving really helpful advice. So there's multiple facets, but it's a good point. We do like the negative, right? That's just human nature. Love it. So Shelly, you're going to use Fishful? Mm -hmm. You're going to download so, it? So, you know, so... Yeah, Turn absolutely. off the notifications, the pain in the ass, like every... <laughs> okay. The notifications okay. are worse than Clubhouse, which I have oh, completely God, deleted, but... So Kim, the fact that people who've got nothing but shit in their mouth, that's all they want to talk about. And they may be the ones to be quick to answer. I wonder, because it is anonymous, right? Is there any way for the employer to track who said what? You know, that's the first thing I would think. I love your example of I'm in the fourth interview stage over at Shaw. And I'm wondering, is this what it really seems to be? And an employee comes back and says, you better be prepared to have every decision takes six months. And can the employer go back and find out who said that? 
part of the attractiveness of this platform. It is mm -hmm. anonymous, but it is real. It, they have to verify you based on either your LinkedIn profile or a work oh. email. So if you've logged into Fishbowl, they verify that you legitimately do work for, say, Shaw by your LinkedIn profile and, and you're emailing from a company email. Hold on a minute. If you're using company email, you have no expectation of privacy. Hold on. Correct? Hold on. Hold on. You're registering, but there's no emails that go to your work emails in any way. They're just verifying that it's oh, okay. a real company name that exists, but there's oh, okay, no emails okay. going to your hmm. company email address or anything. Yeah, I thought about that too. Okay, okay. It's it's a place to really have conversations. Like people join recruiting brain food and asking questions in Facebook groups. It's very similar. You can ask people if they've ever come across this situation, what would you do? So I need to recruit in Mexico. What should I be aware of? And what should I look at? And so at it's all still anonymous? Group? It's all anonymous. Okay. So here's my ew is I love the recruiting brain food Facebook group because we're not hiding behind nothing. Yeah. Everybody knows that it's Serge or Shelly or Kim. And so any comment that I make must be thoughtful and must be constructive. And we've got to follow the ground rules of being on that Facebook group, you know, versus they're anonymous. I don't know. I don't yeah. like it. You don't like anything new, Shelly. So that's not true. That is so I'm not gonna true. Look at it. So that is so not true. I love new shit. Oh no, you, you're but still. But I don't like this whole anonymous cloak and dagger stuff. No, you, you, you still drive a 1962 Pinto. You still have Classic. bell bottoms. You're still. The you, bell bottoms are back. Uh, they're back. Yeah, but, yeah. And and you have a side part, so you are not in in any way. Um, but another. You see what I have to put up with Kim. So this is why, if he's auditioning my replacement, just be aware. Serge's part just breathe. <laughs> What <laughs> or his forehead? Yeah, what sort of part would we classify that as? <laughs> gorgeous, uh, uh, gorgeous, beautiful, right? So, another fantastic episode, Kim. Thank uh, you again so for joining us. It's thank always you, Kim. A great time. Have a great week. Thank Bye. you. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.